this Lord's Day morning that has brought us together as it does by way of commandment, by way of the admonition of the Scriptures is always an uplifting time for us to appreciate the great blessing of God toward each of us through, over the past week and to prepare us in mind and spirit for this week that's ahead of us if it be the blessing of God. On so many occasions in the sacred scriptures, we find that admonition to find strength in our devotion to the Lord and that strength that we find from seeing the faithfulness in the lives of those who are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. As you may have noted in the bulletin today, the entitlement of the lesson is, as you see on the wall to my left, the person of Daniel. And it is to that sixth chapter of Daniel, I would invite you to turn with me for the next few moments this morning as we reflect and consider in some detail a particular episode in the life of Daniel, and to look at that episode perhaps anew with appreciative glasses, if you please, and to make use of some of those matters to assist us as we strive to be the kind of individuals that God would have us to be. Perhaps it's fair to say in light of those things that the characters of the Bible form an almost limitless supply of opportunities for you and for me to consider. On the one hand, there are some characters who, by their foolishness and by their mistakes, they challenge us to live better than they did. For instance, there was Achan, who in that early stage in the book of Joshua, we find there that he was overwhelmed and surrendered to the matter of covetousness, stole what, of course, God commanded never to be done for them in that day, and he, of course, paid the final price. He lost his life, so did his family, and to this day reckoned, of course, as a fool. As you and I think about others, their example is so different. There is, of course, Abraham, just to name one among many, one who is called the friend of God, who lived a life and who in Romans 4 is still used for you and me as an example of faithfulness. I would submit that perhaps one of the dangers that can so easily fall our way is to detach those characters from your day and mine. We often make excuses, well, they lived in a far distant place in an ancient era and time, and they don't face what I face. They didn't deal with the things I deal with daily. And therefore, we somewhat look at the things in the Bible, at least as it relates to them, and don't extract as much from it as we could for ourselves. It still is true that we face the same kinds of temptations they did. We often fall to the same kind of mistakes they did. And you and I can rejoice as celebrate victory as they, like Abraham, did. Perhaps it's in light of all that. Might we look at Daniel for a while this morning? Please turn, if you haven't already done so, to that book of Daniel. And let's look at just a few of the magnificent things found about this sterling character in the heart of the Old Testament. Seven things I've chosen that I would wish us to use but simply based on these matters touching the sixth chapter. I believe as we study them, as we give thought to them, we will find time and again that they in fact address you and me in a very real fashion today. First of all, in the first three verses of Daniel chapter 6, we read these interesting statements. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. One of the first things to be observed about this chapter is on this occasion. We notice that Darius, the Persian monarch, 
had made a choice to set over the 120 districts throughout the Persian Empire, a leader, a representative person of authority over each of those regions, 100 and 100, 120. We notice, though, that there were three presidents that were in hierarchy above them. These presidents were individuals who obviously were highly regarded. They were in positions of great authority. And we notice that Daniel was one of those three presidents. Isn't it immediately clear to see that Daniel was a person elevated mightily in the regions or considerations of secular activity? Here he was, in essence, practically second in authority to the king. He had been elevated, advanced, if you will. And that's the title to this first segment of the lesson. Isn't it true that there can be times when we wonder, does God wish me to use this ability, this talent that I have, this capability that's mine? Is it His will that I employ that? And perhaps in this example of Daniel, we see an interesting example. Daniel had the capability mentally, the capability to involve judgment, the capability to make decisions as it regarded to the behavior of others, and God blessed him greatly. Daniel was advanced to positions in which he could impact and influence others in a tremendous fashion. Perhaps that reminds us ever so interestingly that we can think about ourselves. Every individual before whom I stand is unique. Every one of us have our own set of abilities, our own set of talents, our own set of capabilities. And isn't it true that God expects us to utilize them to His glory? And that's one of the things about Daniel that's so refreshing, isn't it? He wasn't overwhelmed by selfishness. He wasn't overwhelmed by any sense of personal pride or gain. He was simply desirous of using those abilities in a way to benefit God's people who at this time were in captivity. And what a noble calling it was. It may be that you and I may find ourselves with opportunities to occupy positions. And if we do, may we in humility proceed to serve the Lord in any capacity in which we find ourselves. And do so in such a way that we can glorify God the way that we shall learn Daniel did later in this same chapter. A few verses that challenge us in those regards may well be these. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1 verse 17. That reminds us that those matters that God has placed within you and me are blessings from Him, talents He does expect us to use. The usage of them perhaps leads us to 1 Corinthians 4 verse number 2, a very text we looked at last Sunday evening, oddly enough. Isn't it still stated on that occasion that it is found in stewards that they must be faithful? Faithfulness. Notice that Daniel was advanced. He occupied this high position of authority, but in that position, what did he do with that authority? And how did his position lead him to the chapter that follows? Come with me to the second one. As Daniel occupied this position... We find in Daniel not the slightest reference to a motivation by greed or a motivation by covetousness. I find that extremely interesting in many ways given the kind of culture in which we live. Turn back with me just one chapter to Daniel chapter 5. You might recall that Daniel had a powerful ability. 
an ability to interpret dreams, an ability to sense meaning in visions and in other things like that, an ability given to him by God. In fact, so noteworthy was that ability that even the foreign monarchs recognized it. Back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, in fact, found Daniel could interpret the dream. In Daniel chapter 4, this same monarch, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream about a tree. And once again, Daniel could interpret the dream Nebuchadnezzar had had. In the very next chapter, it was a wicked ruler named Belshazzar. In, five, in chapter 5, you may recall, a hand appeared and there was writing on the wall. Belshazzar was very interested to know what the writing was and what it meant. Finally, it was understood Daniel could read it and Daniel could tell the meaning and Daniel could show forth the signs and interpretation. Daniel was called. And might I invite you to notice in verses 15 and 16, Daniel was promised some things. Daniel, if you can show the meaning of this, Belshazzar told him, you will be clothed in scarlet. You will be elevated to almost second in command in the empire. Notice what personal gain Daniel had to stand and the temptation that was set before him. That leads me to this observation at the top of the next slide. What opportunities were Daniel's? He could have been filthy rich at the statement of the king. All he had to do was agree to that. But what was Daniel's reply? He wasn't in the business for greed, and he wasn't in the business for covetousness. In fact, the text simply says, in the very next verse, Daniel 5, verse 17, Daniel said, let thy gifts be given to another. Daniel didn't want them. Daniel wasn't motivated. That was not his incentive. Sometimes today, we are aware that it appears as if there are those who have that as their motivation. If it's money, if it's prestige, or something along that line, one will often find them right in the midst of it. But yet we notice that was not Daniel's interest. How often in the Bible does God warn us about covetousness? How often does He warn us about an overt pursuit of that which is money-related or materially-minded? Just a sampling of verses might well be these. As the Lord addressed a question asked of him in Luke 12, 15, he said, Beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. There were those in the Lord's day that were consumed by this love of money, consumed by all that could be purchased and made available from it, and yet Jesus said that is not the telltale meaning of life. Furthermore, you notice in Hebrews 13, 5, let not your conversation be of covetousness. Such a temptation can so often beset us to in covetousness pursue what Daniel had the opportunity for but rejected. May we quickly say that then in addition to his advancement, he was not advanced because of his love for money. He wasn't advanced simply because that he was one who pursued what so many others did in that day and time. It's certainly fair to say in light of those observations that it takes us directly back to that last set of verses under that heading. Philippians 4.11 continues to remind us one and all, even as Paul wrote, the characteristic of contentment, the characteristic of not overtly pursuing those matters. You'll notice also in Matthew 6.24 that final statement of choice all of us must make. No man can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and hold or uh, and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God in mammon. That mammon is an Aramaic word for, in essence, riches, wealth. Notice the Lord asserted you can't serve both those things. Certainly it's fair to say that a third lesson then is this one. In addition to those two, we find in the verses that follow there in Daniel chapter 6, the following interesting thing. It's what I've entitled the object of jealousy. This is the text that was read earlier by Joy, but notice in the way now in context in which it appears. We've just studied about his advancement. Daniel's position as one of those three presidents, and in fact, the king even thought to make him the chief among the presidents. Verses 4 and 5 then say, Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Darius had looked favorably upon Daniel. And as he had elevated him, not just among the 120 princes, but even among the three presidents, we find that verse 4 now tells us that these presidents and these princes, a total of 122 other individuals, it says they sought to find occasion against Daniel. They sought to find occasion. You and I might use different words in that today. They stabbed him in the back. They were guilty of collusion against him. They were guilty of secrecy. You can imagine the whispering that went on behind Daniel's back. What can we find against this man? They were jealous of him. They envied him and the favor that the king had bestowed upon him. They had a jealousy in regard to that which he had accepted and that which he was in person. Immediately that teaches us, of course, a grand lesson, doesn't it? There are occasions and there are times when we find even in the course of biblical narrative that others, not just Daniel, face this same matter. Jesus did. I have invited you to consider Mark 12 verse 13. On that occasion, as Jesus was preaching and as He was so wont to do, the text informs us that the scribes and Herodians sought to catch Him in His words. They weren't listening to Him to learn the truth. They weren't listening to Him to be edified and built up and to appreciate the things from heaven. They were listening with an ear to find a mistake, to catch Him in, a, in something that they could use to turn the public tide against Him. They were listening carefully, but not for the right reason. Isn't it interesting that it still can be true that those who are godly and those who are upright and those who strive to live as God would have them do may on occasion find themselves as the object of jealousy. When others who claim to be a friend, who claim to be a supporter, who claim to be one who is an encourager will in time be found to be the very one seeking to tear down one's influence, tear down that strength that one has, and maybe even to call into question one's faith. That tragedy is almost beyond words, but Daniel faced it. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, I, I submit that it's likely that all of us will at some point in life. In John 15 verse 19, Jesus, a mere hours before His crucifixion, He told those apostles that were therein gathered about this very matter. 
And later in the very next chapter, John 16, 2, he said, Some are going to put you to death and think they're doing God's service. They, in fact, will seek to destroy your position. They will call into question your motivation. In 1 John 3, verse 13, the inspired writer said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. That word hate seems so strong, doesn't it? It seems so powerful and overwhelming, and yet the inspired writer said, Don't be alarmed and don't be surprised if there are occasions in which you find the world will dislike you, they will hate you, they will strive to tear down your influence, they'll call into question what you've worked so hard to build. Don't be surprised. It may be that in this audience, many of us have found ourselves in circumstances like that on the job site, maybe in the community, maybe even at school, where those who claim to be a supporter and a community of friends ultimately become out of jealousy those who will in fact run roughshod over the very thing you've stood for, and they'll almost give occasion to life as they do it. It breaks our heart. It causes us, in fact, to shed tears of concern of why would they do this? Daniel never tried to hurt any of the princes. He never acted in a way to destroy the influence of the presidents, but yet they sought to destroy him. For those reasons, look at another one of these verses, although it's at the bottom in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. The inspired writer Paul, who certainly could speak very powerfully and directly to this topic, he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And sometimes that persecution may be housed under the umbrella of jealousy from another. As we have seen, Daniel faced these matters. Look at what's up next. Isn't it fascinating to notice that these princes and these presidents, they sought occasion against Daniel. But verse 5 is quick to say, we shall not find it, except we find it against the law of his God. They saw, they scrutinized everything that Daniel did, I'm sure. Everything that he said, every place that he went, I'm sure they looked with great and scrutinizing care. And amazingly enough, in verse 4 it says, they could find none. Wouldn't it be amazing to be a person of such purity? a person of such godliness, a person of such holiness that even though there's a crowd of people looking to find something about you that they can't find a thing. Today we're well aware, especially as every political election comes around, that they turn over every rock every time in that person's life for years in the past looking to find something, at least the opposite party of the person, that they can use to remove his credibility, they can use to hurt his influence. These people looked hard. They couldn't find a thing against Daniel as it related to the kingdom. What does that say about his purity? What does that say about his sterling character? It has often occurred to me that surely across the stage of the biblical characters, Daniel has to stand near the top. Isn't it amazing that even though they looked and even though they found themselves looking into a life and here was one who had been treated so harshly, Daniel had been taken captivity. He, in fact, found himself so far removed from Jerusalem, the place he loved, found himself removed from his family, found himself far distant from that temple and tabernacle. And yet he still was such that they could find no fault, no error within him. What does that say about your life and mine? 
as others around us look carefully at your life and mine, are they able to find nothing? Are they able to, in fact, appreciate one whose devotion and dedication is above reproach? It does cause us to reflect on some of these verses. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Paul admonished Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, Keep thyself pure. Purity is a matter that in many instances is lost, isn't it? We look upon it not as specially, not as highly, not as respected as perhaps it once was. Now we make excuses, we rationalize. Well, he has a hard life. Surely we can overlook it this time. Or he's faced all kinds of matters. Notice it was no excuse for Daniel. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself, to quote Daniel 1 verse 8. As we then notice this purity in life of Daniel, doesn't it bring us to some passages admonishing us along that same line? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Question, who is it that will be blessed eventually to see God in heaven? Purity in heart is one requirement. Do you and I then subscribe daily to a heart that's pure, seeking to follow it with urgency and with intensity? Perhaps one more passage is 1 Timothy 4.12 in which Paul addressed, of course, Timothy, but by inspiration, all of us who would call ourselves Christians. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in purity, in faith, in love. A sixfold example all of us ought to be, and one of them is purity. I realize at times that can be so challenging, be it at school, be it in the midst of comrades like Daniel had who really are more like enemies than friends, and yet to main, maintain purity is a challenge, but it can be done. May we strive to do so with encouragement and with love. Maybe in light of that, it brings us to another observation about Daniel, taken again from the same chapter. You'll notice in verses 6 and following, a section I've entitled, Faithfulness. The text goes on to say, Then the princes and presidents assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man, for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions." These princes and presidents finally caught upon an idea. We won't find any occasion against Daniel, they concluded, unless it in some way involves his devotion to his God. And so it was that they, in collusion, brought forth a petition and had the king to sign it that there is to be no petition of any man or God for a full 30 days except it's of thee, O king. Darius liked the idea. And upon his belief that the captains, the counselors, the presidents, and all of them had asserted such a thing, that he fully brought it into law, verses 8 and 9. At this point, Daniel now had a problem. The king had just signed the law. There is to be no prayer. There is to be no pursuit of any being, person, or God other than the king for a full 30 days. But yet Daniel was a man of prayer. Daniel was a man of devotion to God. Daniel was a man who understood his own weakness and he relied, of course, upon the God of heaven for strength. 
And thus, in verses 10 and 11, I would invite you to notice how strong is Daniel's faithfulness. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. As he did aforetime, it was the custom, it was the lifestyle of Daniel that three times a day he prayed. And you'll notice that windows were open and he was faced toward Jerusalem, that beloved place where the temple of God had stood. The king's decree didn't change Daniel's behavior. It didn't change his reliance upon God. And wasn't he exhibit A about that text in Acts 5.29? We ought to obey God rather than men. We notice that he knew well what the writing of the law had been. He knew well what the result of this decree was. And he even knew the punishment. May I ask, would you and I have caved into that pressure? Knowing that we might be cast into a den of lions, would it not have been tempting to at least close the windows? Wouldn't it have been tempting to maybe drop the prayers only once a day and do it at midnight? Daniel seemingly didn't change a thing. His confidence, his reliability, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness in God was unmoved. May I submit that that's a powerful example, isn't it? And so, what about your faithfulness and mine? Sometimes we appreciate it takes a far less motivating factor than this to cause us to waver. The encouragement of a friend... Perhaps when things don't go right at work and we cave beneath a load of pressure and say what ought not be said or act in a way that's terribly unchristian. And yet here was the very threat of death and Daniel was unmoved. That perhaps leads us to th some of those verses at the bottom. We had noted earlier that text in Acts 5.29 about obeying God rather than men. But what about that text in James 1 verse 12? When here near the beginning of that interesting little epistle in the New Testament, the inspired writer said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to those that love him. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. That word in the original language identifies one who overcomes it, one who emerges victorious, not just one who suffers temptation. Are you and I overcoming it? Are we beset with a mind of faithfulness so that we can truly appreciate, as Revelation 2.10 tells us, Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Faithfulness is expected by God, is it? It's demanded by Him. Today, as we look at Daniel, part number 5 has pointed out so powerfully his faithfulness even under threat of death. But however, that does lead us to another statement. You know well what happened next. Daniel, not only being aware that the petition or that particular law was signed, we realize that those princes and those presidents, others, they took careful notice that Daniel prayed. I'm sure they parked themselves just outside his place of abode and they stood there at that window, perhaps concealed, but able to hear. And once he prayed unto God, once he did the very thing that their law and the king signed, once he did that, they couldn't wait to bring that news to the king. Their jealousy prompted them to want a man destroyed. They wanted him dead. Throw him into the den of lions. We now notice as the verses in the chapter unfold, 
it brings us to another attribute of Daniel. What happened in his life when it was recognized what he had done? We've already noted, even when he knew the writing, he continued his praying three times a day. Even when that word was brought to the king and even when they sent people to come get him. Notice how courageous he was. A man filled with courage. Would it not have been easy at that time to begin to make excuse? To perhaps say, well, I didn't know the law had been signed. Or perhaps to call into question the integrity of those who had come and got him. Or maybe to rationalize or make excuses away. Well, I really wasn't praying to do anything on the spur of the moment to save your life. But with what courage did Daniel approach the den of lions? In fact, as you read in that chapter, you find that very little by him personally is said. He didn't try to justify his behavior. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't try to make excuse. He just acknowledged the decree was signed and I prayed. You'll notice in verses 16 and 17, Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. The law had been respected. That much among the ancient Persians we would agree to. Once the law was signed, there was no partiality, not even for Daniel. And so into the den of lions he was thrown. We notice, interestingly enough, that even the king recognized, didn't he, in verse 16, the nature of this one. May your God, Daniel, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Even the king apparently had been impressed by the kind of piousness and righteousness that had characterized the life of Daniel. And even he was understanding of the fact that the one on whom Daniel relied was God. As you can see in verses 18 and following, something else interesting happened in regard to the king. It says, Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Here was a man who endured a sleepless night because his friend, one whom he respected due to collusion of those who were about him and the jealousy that impacted them, here was one whom the king was just sure would be killed. He spent a sleepless night because he'd been influenced by the life of a godly man. Do others who are living in sin or at least others who are living a life unlike what they should, are they bothered by the kindness and the example and the love that you and I display? Do they too spend a sleepless night because they know that they don't enjoy the peace and tranquility in life that you've got? I wonder, are you and I that kind of an example? That kind of influence, that kind of one upon whom others can look for guidance and for encouragement? You'll notice that first thing in the morning, verse number 19, the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. Picture it. Here was the highest authority figure in the empire. Early in the morning, you see him running through the streets to where the den of lions is located. I suspect that didn't happen very often. Normally, kings and princes and those in authority are those that are served by others and they don't run anywhere. You carry them, they ride in a chariot or some other such thing. But here was a king running to the den of lions, anxious to know what happened to Daniel. 
Verse 20 says, And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Daniel, is the God you serve able to deliver you from the lions? A number of hours had now passed, and the first words from Daniel, he's alive. O king, live forever. And in the verses that follow, Daniel regarded the fact God has sent his angel and they has closed and stopped the mouth of the lions and Daniel wasn't harmed at all. But in the verses that follow, something else took place. Verse 24 says, And the king commanded, And they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions had the mastery of them and break all their bones in pieces wherever they came at the bottom of the den. What a difference it makes to consider final disposition. On the one hand, things look so bleak for Daniel. Here was one cast into the den of lions. So certain seemingly was his death. And yet, we notice the morning came, all was well with Daniel. The lions weren't even hungry. Their mouths had been stopped. The God of heaven had suppressed them. But then the king gave another order. All those accusers to Daniel cast them into the den of lions, and now suddenly the lions were ferocious. Suddenly they were extraordinarily hungry and in fact slaughtered them before they ever even got to the bottom of the den. What a difference it makes to be a child of God. It makes all the difference in this world and in eternity, doesn't it? In fact, some of these verses seemingly are so powerful. The person who's a child of God knows in this life that character of peace like Daniel, knows that character of reliance upon one greater than he like Daniel, and that one, of course, has all the promises of these verses here. For he walks by faith, not by sight. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 5. This is one like Daniel who appreciates the power of Romans 5. 1. Therefore... Let us have peace with God, being justified by faith. Finally, you notice in Philippians 4, 7, The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the kind of blessing a child of God understands. But on the other hand, what happened to those accusers, those motivated by jealousy, those motivated by hatred, those motivated by the things not of God? You notice in them, the final disposition was anything but peace. They couldn't even rejoice at the success of another. They were motivated by all those things that Daniel shunned. In Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, we read, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's no peace to the wicked, either in this life or the life to come. Isn't that sad? Isn't that overwhelmingly abominable? No wonder we're admonished in the life of Daniel to appreciate then one last time the admonition in this lesson that I've tried to summarize like this. Daniel was surely one of the finest men to ever walk this earth. As we look at the book of Daniel, we find such a sterling character, and yet in his life, just one brief episode has revealed these things to us. First, he was blessed by God with advancement among his peers. You notice also, we appreciate in him that even in that, his motivation was not greed or covetousness. Sadly enough, he was the object of jealousy on the part of his contemporaries. 
we find also in that such tremendous purity in his life. There is to be noted the faithfulness descriptive of his life even under the duress of the den of lions. There was that character of the courage with which he faced that den. And finally, the final disposition of Daniel was when he was saved. I submit to you all of that applies in parallel to us today. Every bit of it encouraging us. We may be advanced as well by God due to talent and ability. But if so, may it never be motivated by greed or covetousness. Furthermore, we appreciate that we may well be the objects of jealousy, but may we handle it as well as Daniel, maintaining purity all the while, that sterling example of both courage and faithfulness, and then, of course, the final disposition being that of a saved individual. This day, as you analyze your life and scrutinize who you are, are you in need of coming before God today in a way to appreciate that His love for you has left you at this point? You have not responded if you've never become a member of the body of Christ, a member of the fold of God, why do you wait another day? God sent His Son that you might have an opportunity to be saved. Will you reject that offer? The plan of salvation involves you hearing the gospel, believing Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. At that point, walk faithfully until death. If you fall and stumble and you bring reproach upon the church, upon yourself, upon Christ... There is a second law of pardon. Come asking prayers of brethren who will be honored to pray for you and with you that your sins might be forgiven. If we could be of assistance to anyone today, we'd be honored to do so. It'd be our privilege and we'd be happy to serve you at this time. Brother Glenn has chosen a song of encouragement. Won't you come even now if that's the need in your life while we stand and while we sing?